Please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 57. We'll be reading the entire chapter, Isaiah, chapter 57. The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. But you, come here, you sons of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes, Whom are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. They, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In the light of these things, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorpost, you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked on their nakedness. You went to Molech with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the grave itself. You were wearied by all your ways, but you would not say it is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have been false to me and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on his willful ways. I've seen his ways. But I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, 
and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I'm asking you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57, the passage that was just read for us. Sometimes people have two homes, uh, one up north where they spend three seasons of the year and then one down south to escape this stuff that we're beginning to taste even this morning. Uh, Folks call them snowbirds, and rightly so. Uh, The Junco is such a bird, and I can just about set my calendar to November 5th every year that they show up. I'm not sure where they're coming from, but I wouldn't want to spend my winter there if this is their winter home. But these, this idea of two homes, we see it with people, we see it with the birds that God has created. And in our text for today, the Lord tells us about his home, the place where he lives. And what we find is that he's got more than one house, uh, more than one dwelling place. Indeed, he has a heavenly one and an earthly one. And here it is. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. This is our text for today. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. But also with him who is lowly in spirit and who is lowly and contrite. I'm sorry, who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Just three points this morning. Number one, the speaker. Number two, where he lives. And number three, why he lives there. So the speaker, first of all. We hear what he says. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. There we have three divine excellencies attributed to him. First of all, he is the exalted one, the high and lofty one. It reads like a title that's descriptive of who he is, his nature, high and lofty, exalted in majesty, in authority, in power. And notice he's the high and lofty one. There is none As high as him, he's above all others. He rules over all as we've just sung. The only one in his class of exaltation, far, far above us and anything else that is created. He's the exalted one. Then he tells us he's the eternal one. Maybe your version has he inhabits eternity. He lives forever. Psalm 90 and verse 2 says that before the mountains were born, Or you ever brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now that's eternity, from everlasting that way and to everlasting that way. And he inhabits the whole of eternity. Now that's hard for us to get our minds around because ourselves and everything else that we see and know had a beginning. But God is without beginning. Or end. There was never a time when he was not. The uncreated creator. 
who always was, who is, and is to come, is the way the Bible speaks of him. He's the eternal one. So the exalted one, the eternal one, and then the holy one, whose name is holy, whose nature, all that he is, is holy. That is, is set apart from everything else that exists. Yes, in purity, but in every way, he is unlike us to a degree that is unreachable. You remember when Isaiah was first called in chapter 6, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was given in vision to see him as he is, high and lifted up. And he heard these sinless seraphs shouting and crying out antiphonally around the throne, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, when the Hebrew wants to emphasize something, it repeats it twice. But this is one of the rare places in Scripture where there is a triple repetition. And it's something that the sinless angels are saying about our Lord, the speaker of these words. You are holy, but that's not enough to attribute to you. You are holy, holy. But that's not enough to attribute to. You are holy, holy, holy. Altogether, out of reach to what we are. We, even the sinless seraphs. Indeed, the the highest archangel is Michael. And his name means, who is like the Lord? Here he is on on the top of the rung of, of all the angels. And he is in wonderment and marveling at who's like him. Not not caught up with himself, but the holiness of God. Staggered. So he is the exalted one, the eternal one, the holy one. Those Those are attributions of deity. So no mistake about it. The one who's speaking to us is the only living and true God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the first point. The second point, what is he saying to us? Well, he's telling us where he lives. Where does he live? Well, he says, I live in a high and holy place. And isn't that where you would expect the high and lofty one to live? In a high and holy place. It's it's a most fitting place for him. A place matching his high and holy character. Now, the Bible speaks of three heavens. There's the heavens in which the birds fly. Then there's the heavens in which the stars shine. And then there's the highest heaven where God dwells. The highest heaven that cannot contain him. He dwells there, but it doesn't contain him, the scriptures say. That's where he dwells. He's chosen to reveal himself and to make his dwelling place there. So the most high God lives in a high and holy place. That's what he tells us. But it's his second dwelling place that might upon first hearing sound alarming, even shocking to us. And it's upon this that I want to focus our attention this morning. Now I'm told that Great Britain's royal family owns some 26 dwelling places. And I suppose the most famous is the Buckingham Palace in London. 
a lavish palace, fitting place for her majesty. Uh, 775 rooms. Wouldn't you like to play hide-and-seek in that house? 775 rooms. And the other 25 dwelling places are not too shabby either. Castles and palaces and lavish estates. And again, this is more or less what you'd expect, right? Uh, Places fitting for kings and queens. Now, this morning, we're not talking about the Queen of England. We're talking about the King of Kings, the Eternal One, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in all that he is, holy, exalted above everything else. We're talking about him. And so we're moving from his high and holy place, dwelling place, to his earthly dwelling place. So we look around on the earth and we we might think, well, he must dwell on some majestic cathedral over in Europe or in some mansion. But no, that's not what we find. He tells us in the second part of verse 15, I also dwell with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So we learn that his dwelling place is not a building at all and not so much a place as it is a person. And a certain kind of person. Only those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. Now this idea of God dwelling in a certain type of person on earth is something that our Lord Jesus teaches. He taught it to his uh, disciples in John chapter 14 that night before his arrest. He told them he was leaving them. And that... He's going back to the Father, and he's going to ask the Father, and the Father will give you another comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. He will live in you, and I will come to you. Isn't that interesting? Christ comes to live in us when his Spirit comes to live in us. And that's not all. There's more. Because he goes on to say in verse 23 of John 14, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we, my father and I, will come to him and make our home with him. So there we have it. The three persons of the Godhead, three separate persons, but all sharing equal divinity. So that when the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the father comes to dwell in us, it might be equally said, as Christ does say, that my father and I, too, will come and make our home in you. So that's John 14. You can read it later. But God's dwelling with his people has always been the promise of the covenant of grace. It's a theme that runs right from through our Bibles from The Garden of Eden, God dwelling with his people all the way to the recovery of of a people dwelling with him in the new Jerusalem, the eternal state. So here in Isaiah, we find the hallmark of the Lord's earthly dwelling place. The special character of those he's come to live in. It's to be contrite and lowly in spirit. Now, contrite is not a word we use a lot, is it? Did any of you use it this week? Or this year. 
Let's look at this word, this word contrite. Uh, The basic idea means to be crushed, to be broken, shattered, literally like a clay pot that would be pulverized, or like a people who are crushed under the heel of an oppressive ruler. But here it's used metaphorically to describe the spirit, the heart of certain people. And it's their response to God and his word confronting them with their sin through the prophets. Here it's Isaiah. And this contrition was not the response of the greater part of the nation. They just doubled down, locked in, carried on in their rebellious uh, ways against the Lord. But these, where the Lord dwells, had been made contrite. They had been crushed Brokenhearted for their sin, truly sorrowful. These are the people that the Lord delights to live within, to dwell with. They're humbled to the dust. They're brought right down, you see. And that brings us to the closely related word. It's with those who, with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Now, we're familiar with that phrase, I trust. Lowly in spirit means to be humble in heart. One of the ways to understand a word is to see its opposite. So I want to read a verse to you from Psalm 138.6. And you see if you can uh, pick out the opposite of what it means to be lowly. Psalm 138.6. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly. But the proud He sees from afar. What is opposite to the lowly? Well, it's the proud, the high-minded, the one with the nose in the air, the one who has life by the tail, the one who is just smug and satisfied with their life and thinks, I've got it all together And the Lord is at home with the lowly, not the proud. He is high. He's the high and lofty one. But he looks low and he delights to dwell with those who are lowly in spirit, humble in heart. And this humility has ever been the response of God's people when they meet their God. They go down in lowliness of spirit Back to chapter 6 of Isaiah's prophecy when he was first called. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. And down he went crying, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. For I uh, am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Down he went. Lowly. Lowly. And the lowly in spirit are those who know their place then before the high and lofty one. Indeed, that's what, that's what humility is. It's simply the reaction of those who know God to be who he is, high and lofty, and know themselves for what they are, yet sinful, coming short. And down they go. Humility has always been the hallmark of those in whom God dwells. Indeed, when the Lord Jesus would define those who belong to his kingdom, he does so in eight attitudes. And the very first is, blessed 
are the poor in spirit. It's a poverty of spirit before him. And that mourn. Blessed are those that mourn. So Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? Not, not tons of oil and sacrificial animals, uh, but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. That's it. Remembering who he is, remembering who you are. He's full, you're empty. Uh, he is all sufficient. You are sufficient for nothing without him. You can do nothing without him. And so you find your rightful place before him. Not haughty and high-minded, but lowly and humble. Now, let's try to put some meat on these bones. What does it look like to be contrite and lowly in spirit? How can you know if my text is describing you? That this is one of the places where God dwells in you? Well, flip back, hold your place here, and flip back a few chapters to chapter 66. And here the Lord is asking about his dwelling place. Uh, A passage when uh, Solomon was building the temple for the Lord. And Solomon uh, knew that this house, this temple would in no way be able to contain the Lord. He dwells in the highest heaven. And even that does not contain him. And here in Isaiah 66, uh, we see the Lord asking about his dwelling place. Heaven is my throne and the whole earth is my footstool. So where's the house you'll build me? Where will my resting place be? Is not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. No. You want to ask where I dwell? This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one he he takes notice of. This is the one the high and lofty one Sees the lowly, sees with delight and delights to make them his dwelling place, humble and contrite in spirit. And now we have something else added to that, which gives us a visual on what it means and what it looks like to be contrite and lowly. They tremble at my word. They tremble at my word. So notice that a humble and contrite spirit is expressed in the way that we respond to God's word. Now, that's very concrete, you see. We we can say I'm humble and contrite, but, but what about my word? You see, that's what God is saying. He who trembles at my word, Isaiah repeats it again in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at my word. Because not everyone did tremble at his word. But the humble place themselves under it. You see, that's the humble, contrite, trembling heart. They don't put themselves on top of the word and judge the word of God. Does it it meet with what I think? I've never seen a man walk on water, so I can't believe that's true. I, I can't. You see, no, that's the man on top of the word. Not trembling under, but... But the trembling heart puts oneself under it and has him judge us to see if we are fit. And if we measure up to his thoughts and his truths, they tremble at his word, letting it judge us to see if we fit in with him rather than the opposite. 
And so we cry, search me, O God. Search me right here. Let this be the light that searches me and knows my heart and tests my my mind to see if there be any offensive way in me and then lead me out of that offensive way into the way everlasting. So the expression of humility of heart. Most of the nation heard the word of God. They heard the prophet sent to them. They heard the rebukes from Almighty God and they just yawned and went on their way as if God had never spoken to them. But here are the people in whom he loves to dwell. They revere God's word just because it is the word of God, the high and lofty one, the the one that inhabits eternity. Now, there is uh, a couple examples in Israel's history of kings receiving the word of God. I think of the time of of Josiah, King Josiah, king of Judah. And things were at such a low ebb in the nation that they had lost their Bibles. Think of that. They had lost the Bible. But then when they were uh, cleaning out the temple, they, they found it. They found the law, the book of the law. And they brought it to King Josiah. And they read the, the word of God. And you know what he did? He tore his robes, the king. And, and the Lord says uh, this, that... Uh, Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I had spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste because because you tore your robes and wept in my presence. I've heard you. Therefore, I'll gather you to your fathers. You'll be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all these disasters I'm going to bring upon this place. You see, he trembled before the Lord's word, repented, felt sorry, true sorrow for sin. Crushed, broken. Now, that King Josiah had a son who became king after him. His name was King Jer- uh, Jehoiakim. He was not at all like his father Josiah. And so God told Jeremiah to write on a scroll all the curses and plagues that he was going to bring upon the nation because of their continuous rebellion and refusal to, stubborn refusal to, to repent. So Josiah, or Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Isaiah, what was it? It was Jeremiah. Jeremiah dictated to Baruch. And Baruch wrote down all the curses that that he had pronounced against the nation. And Baruch went into the, the public places and began to tell the people, reading what God had said is coming because of their sins. And some of the king's men heard about this and, and got wind of it. And they, they went and they got Baruch and they got the book. And they... They took this scroll into King Jehoiakim. And they said, King, this is what's being read in your nation about disasters that are coming. Read on, he said. And so they started reading. And when they had read three or four lines of the scroll, he took out his knife and he cut it off and he threw it into the fire pot. And he continued to do so until the whole scroll was burned to ashes. That's what he thought about God's word. You you see, the two couldn't be stronger contrast. Father trembled at the word of God. Son despised the word of God and burned it as if it had nothing to say to him. So what does it look like to be contrite and lowly in spirit? The word of God is the thing that means the most to us. It's the one voice 
that has our attention above all other voices, whether coming from within or from without. One other example. What does it look like to have a humble, a contrite, and lowly spirit? Come to chapter 51 of Psalms. We're coming back to Isaiah, but uh, Psalm 51 is important because it uses some of the same language. And you'll recognize we're turning to the Psalm of Confession that's coming from the man that God says is a man after his own heart. So, so let's come to this man and see what, what it means to have a contrite and lowly spirit. He's confessing his sin of adultery and murder. So right away we see that a contrite and lowly heart does not mean that you're sinless. No, not at all. This, he would be disqualified then right from the start. It's not about... Uh, Sinlessness, it's what you do when your sin confronts you and when you're confronted for it. And that's what we see from this great man, David. And the more familiar I become with the Psalms, the more convinced I am that he saw himself as a small man before a big God. Not always, not perfectly. He too fell into arrogant sins, putting his own pleasures ahead of God's pleasures. Wanting his way and thinking his way was more worthy than God's way. But follow David after his falls. If you would learn what a contrite and lowly spirit is. You know, a lot of people down through the ages, I I used to work with a man. They would quote David's falls to excuse their sins. And some old divine said, many will hold forth the example of David's falls but who do not, do not follow him in his repentings. And what we're getting to see is his repentings from his sins. Now, the whole psalm is a lesson in what it means to be contrite and lowly in spirit. I'll leave that to you to, to look at more carefully. He, he confesses his sins, not only particular sins, but he confesses his sinful mess, that he was conceived in sin he has a sinful nature and that's why he sins and he sees it more clearly now after these sins than he ever saw it before surely i was conceived in sin look what has happened look what i have done so he confesses he he, he's brought low is what we see in psalm 51 then it's verses 16 and 17 look at verse 16 you do not delight in sacrifice or i would bring it You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. David lived under the old covenant with all the requirements of God for animal sacrifices to be offered as they confess their sins. But though living under the old covenant, David understood the heart of God, what he was after. And he saw to the heart of God that that what delighted and pleased him was not just another animal burning on the altar. Verse 17 penetrates to the very heart of God, revealing what he is after, what does delight him, what does bring him pleasure. And so verse 17, he says, no, no, it's, it's not just more animals on the altar, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, but rather will take pleasure in and delight in. But you know what he does despise? That mere outward religion of sacrifice and burnt offerings without the inner contrite, broken heart. 
And there was plenty of it in the nation. Indeed, that's precisely what most of Israel was giving to God in the Old Testament. And what the prophets constantly were harping against as they brought God's judgments to them. They would bring their outward prescribed rituals, but their hearts were far from him. They lacked this broken, contrite heart that he was after in their sacrifice and in their contrition or in their confession. And so as Isaiah opens this letter, he, he, he right from chapter one, that's the thing he's putting his finger on. We read about some of their sins in chapter 57 and you read the whole book. It's just a, a litany of, of the way that their sinful hearts had drawn them away from the Lord and into idolatry, rebellion. They're even called Sodom and Gomorrah, if that's a clue to their ethics. And yet, do you know what? They kept coming to church and they kept up the sacrificial system. They made sure that, that God had his, his bull on the altar burning. As if that ought to pacify God and satisfy him. We're good to go. Let's go out and keep worshiping our idols on the high places. And, and keeping these good luck charms in behind our doors. And, and, and treating each other with hatred. But we've, we've offered the bullock. God's happy now. And God's anger burns against that. And so he says in the first chapter of Isaiah 11 to 14. The multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings or rams or fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats when you come and appear before me. Who's asked this of you? This trampling of my court. Stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. Your incense is detestable. I can't bear it. My soul hates it. Your, your assembly, evil assemblies have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Now, now, that was the nation. That's the backdrop. But, but here's David. And here's a different spirit. It, it wasn't always this way. He covered his sin. Then he tried to. But God dealt with him and brought him to the place of this broken and contrite heart for his sins against God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. He saw his great sin against his great God. And so our hearts are exposed for what's inside and are seen by our heart before God's word when it points out our sins. Do we want to hear it? Do we come to it humbly? Do we ask it to search us? And when it points out our sins, do we drop our defenses? Do we humbly own them? And just as we are, come pleading mercy. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the humble and contrite heart that delights God so much that he said, that's, that's what I esteem. That's the one I look to. That's where I love to, to live and dwell. So we return to our text in Isaiah 57. And we learn that these contrite and lowly ones were not always so. It wasn't that, well, we have just the best of Israel here. Wow, they, they really shine, outshine their fellows. No, in fact, we learned that these with a contrite and lowly heart were once as stubborn and rebellious as the rest. But God in sovereign grace saved and transformed this remnant out of the whole nation 
He healed their rebellious hearts. He created in them this contrite, lowly spirit, making them a fitting dwelling place for his holy, exalted presence. Look at verse 16. Shows us how, how God found these people with a contrite and lowly spirit. He found them in rebellion. But he was unwilling to accuse forever. God was unwilling to always be angry with them. So you see where it all begins? Where does salvation begin? Not in the sinner. It begins in God's unwillingness to pour out his wrath on all men forever. He's going to save some. That was out of the goodness of the sheer grace of his heart, I was unwilling to accuse forever. Now he says in verse 17, I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him. I hid my face in anger. Have you ever seen sinners getting punished by God? And even in this life, learning and and finding out that the way of the sinner is hard, the way of the transgressor is hard, And yet they get pounded down and and you say, surely now they'll repent. But no, as he says earlier, you found renewal of your strength. And so you would not say it is hopeless. You were wearied by all your ways. You were beaten down and crushed. But you strengthened yourself, pulled yourself up and went on. And he's saying, that's the way you were. I was enraged. I punished him, hid my face. And we might think, surely now the nation repented. Yet he kept on in his willful ways. Even after all the discipline and punishment God brought upon the nation, they just, as if God hadn't done or said anything. And verse 18, I have seen his way. I've seen how he's responded to my discipline. Just totally wiping it off. He was watching to see their response. And we might expect... To hear next, so I'm really going to let him have it with a bigger hammer this time, which sometimes is what he does. But no, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. You mean while he's rebelling? While he's sticking out his tongue against you? While he's just in your face? I've seen his ways, but I'm going to heal him going to heal him of his waywardness i'm going to heal him of that that stubborn spirit i will guide him i will restore comfort to him i will create praise on the lips of the mourners in israel i will create peace peace to those who are far and near says the lord and i will heal them the rebellious the stubborn those with no fear of god or his word So you see how this was pure grace. It's no small thing that the Most High must do to make us sinners fitting dwelling places for the Most High. Now, that's not only true of Isaiah's hearers who are described as contrite and low. That's true of every one of us who are believers this morning. What did it take to make you a fitting dwelling place for the the living God to live Oh, it took the high and lofty one stooping low. He who is the high and lofty one stooping to become a man, humbling himself even further 
to become a servant. Humbling himself even further to become sin for us. And to take that sin to the cross and and there to suffer as the substitute for his people. And to assume all the wrath of God. And so to become not only sin for us, but a curse for us. And to be damned in our place. To be crushed when we deserved the crushing. That's what it took to make you and me fit dwelling places with a contrite and lowly spirit. But there's more. It it took the Holy Spirit coming and regenerating you and, and making you a new creature. Taking out that old stubborn heart and putting in a soft heart that complies with the word of God and trembles at his word rather than just ignores it and goes on. It took a a supernatural work of the spirit to, to bring you to new birth. All of this that he might save us and make us his dwelling places of people who are now marked as those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. Does my text describe you this morning? Is that you? Not to perfection. There is no such thing. But really and radically, that you've gone from the proud and the self-sufficient and the self-righteous and the one who does not tremble at God's word to one who is low before him. You know your place now. He's God, I'm not. He's holy, I'm not. His word is law, not mine. And he, the high and lofty one, has stooped low to make me great. Oh, here I am, Lord. I'm yours. I'm yours. I, I'm, I'm here to serve you. That's, my, that's why I exist now. My life is not my own. It's yours. And we are most willing subjects of the high and holy one. If this isn't you, why not come to him today just as you are? Because he takes people who are stubborn and rebellious and he makes them. He heals them. And he makes them his dwelling place. We've seen the speaker. We've seen where he lives, not only in a high, exalted place, but also with the contrite and lowly in spirit. And now lastly, we're asking, why does he live here? Why would he live in a, in a place like this with lowly people like us? Contrite, lowly spirit people. And he tells us to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He tells us not once but twice for our our encouragement that he lives in us to revive us. Now, everybody here knows what it means to revive. Revive. New life. Renewed life. It's what you do when your battery is dead. You, You charge it up again. It's what you do when you are dead in the evening and you fall into bed dead tired. And after a good night's sleep, you wake up revived. Restored, renewed, revivified. Now this is the good news for the contrite and lowly. This is the good news of our passage. We are so keenly aware of our flesh, that down drag of sin that we heard in Sunday school about. That whenever we would do good, we always find there's this pull down to evil. 
And, and we have a devil ever at our heels who knows exactly what we like. He knows what John likes and he knows what you like. And he, he offers us what we like. What that sinful nature still likes. That, that indwelling sin still likes. And we have a world with attractive allurements pulling on us constantly. Trying to put distance between us and our Savior. Dousing the fire of our faith, cooling our first love for Christ and others, dimming the power of our hope, distracting us from seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness, cramming our lives so full that we have little time to hear his voice in the scripture, to draw aside and to seek him with all of our hearts in prayer, to enjoy fellowship with the triune God. We have all of that working together against us. Isn't it scary how how quickly our hearts can go from hot to cold? I've been on fire in church on Sunday. And I've been icy cold on Monday morning. That's scary. I've been full of life one moment and half dead the next with regard to spiritual life the life of holiness in Christ. Where is it? And this is just the good news for us then. It shows how great our need is for this constant reviving, a a, a continual revivification of breathing fresh life, spiritual life into our deadness. It exactly meets our need when we learn that the very reason that the high and lofty God dwells in us, lowly ones, is in order to revive us. To revive us. How much we owe to the on-site reviver and his continual reviving of our hearts. Think of our faith. Faith's reviving. When we can't see God in the storm, he's nowhere. And we're afraid and we're panicking. And then suddenly faith finds some comfort in a promise that that just comes home to our hearts with power. And and suddenly it's like the, the clouds are split and the sunshine, the light breaks upon our day. And and we're ready to trust that promise with our lives. Our lives. Suddenly, this unseen Christ is as real to us as anything that we we see. Faith's reviving. What about our hope? Hope in the long trials that we, we realize aren't going away any time soon, if ever, in this life. Darkness, depression sets in. And suddenly our, our blessed hope breaks through with light. The glorious return of our great God and Savior who's coming to restore all things and to put all things right when everything will be reconciled to Him. And it brings the adrenaline of Eternal encouragement and good hope to us, reviving our hope. What about our love? We're looking at that triad of faith, hope, and love. What about our love? Love's reviving when God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. It's, 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 it's just permeates our hearts in ways that, that we've forgotten or we haven't enjoyed lately. And it warms us and it fills us and it melts the icy coldness that we've had in our heart toward the Lord. And then do our hearts burn within us after him, to love him, to know more of him, to serve him. 
to draw near in fellowship with him. Strength's reviving when we're growing weak. And... Oh, but then when he comes and restores our strength, we, we run in the way of his commandments. We run in the way of his commandments. We, we find new strength to soar like eagles, to run and not grow weary, to walk and not be faint. You see, it's strength's reviving. We owe every step on the long way home to God's reviving of our spiritual strength. And that's why every one of his people will go from strength to strength till each one arrives in Zion. Reviving our strength. Reviving our endurance to fight temptation. To keep saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to say it louder each time. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Reviving our repentance after a period of backsliding and hardness of heart. And then some discovery of our sin smites us, crushes, breaks us. It's the reviving of our God. Even reviving our broken and contrite spirit. It's renewing. Reviving is renewing us. Though outwardly we're wasting away with stress, with illness with disease, with old age moving in on us. Yet inwardly, we are being restored day by day. He dwells in there to revive us, to restore us day by day, renewing a steadfast spirit within us when we've fallen. Reviving is renewing. Reviving is restoring. He restoreth my soul. Healing us of our waywardness and our spiritual diseases. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. We we lost it when we turned away from him. And and now in a broken and a crushed way, we're turning back. Restore the joy of of your salvation. Restoring our peace when worry has made off with it. This reviving of patience, of kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, every grace. We were never meant to live without God himself dwelling in us and dwelling in us to revive us as his people. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. That's the longing. And God's dwelling places are the places where that's happening, where he dwells and dwells in us to do just that. May we take comfort from God's word then this morning. You feeling broken? You're feeling crushed. Maybe, but maybe it's not for sin. Maybe it's just for, for life's hard trials and sufferings and losses. And What does Jesus say? He says, well, you, you all come to me then. All you who weary are weary and burdened down. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am the high and lofty one who lives forever. No, no, that's not what he says. That's who he is. But what does he say when he's welcoming us to come? He's because I am lowly, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's Jesus. The high and lofty one. Gentle and lowly, humble in heart. So don't be afraid. Draw near. Find in me what you need. Rest, the best kind of rest, soul rest. You'll only find it with him. Well, in our closing hymn, we want to respond to the word of God just spoken to us. The Lord has told us he lives in a high and holy place, but also with those who are contrite and lowly. Take your grace hymns 
and we're going to sing number 28. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Stand with me and let's make this our prayer to the, the great God of heaven.